Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha! Tonight on BC Radio Live, we're going to talk with Joel Mathis and Ben Boychuk of redblueamerica.com. We'll also speak with Aram Rothman, the author of The Man Who Pushed America to War, The Extraordinary Life, Adventures, and Obsessions of Ahmad Chalabi. Finally, we'll chat with jazz singer Rosie, whose new album, Luckiest Girl, was released earlier this month. First up, though, we're going to quickly check in with BC Magazine's own Marjorie Case about a new venture she's helping to launch. With a heavy dose of politics and a bit of lightheartedness, this is BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, and the live video feed is now running. I am Philip Wynn, Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson, founder and publisher of BC Magazine. Hello, Eric. Philip, hello. I just made it, didn't I? You bear, you snuck in under the wire. Ah, man, I was scrambling. I had so much to do, and I remembered, oh, no, I haven't sent out a notice to all our fine members to remind them of what a spectacular show we had this evening, so I'm scrambling to do that. I'm, I'm reading through the Chalabi book. I'm listening to Rosie. I'm checking out RedBlueAmerica.com. I'm losing my mind, but I made it, and I'm, I'm a happy guy. Well, very good. Well, also with us tonight is uh, Lisa McKay, executive editor of BC Magazine. Welcome back, Lisa. Well, thank you, and good evening, guys. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Eric. What can you tell about me that's different from the last two weeks? Uh, You're not, not sniffling. I'm not Sick. I'm still slightly nasally. It's not 100% gone. I think it now it's just a matter of some allergies. But yes, I'm finally well. It is so nice. I feel, I feel like I'm walking on sunshine. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, I, I think if you say about three more words of that, we'll, we'll have to hunt down some licensing fees or something. <laughs> no, it's just if I sing it. Oh, is that what which it is? I, which okay. I won't do. Okay, very yep. good. Well, we do want to quickly check in. We, we, do, we have a few people to, to talk to tonight, but we do want to quickly check in with Marjorie Case. She's got a new project uh, that I just learned about today uh, called The Schwagen Wagon. Welcome to the show, Marjorie. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Hi, Marjorie. Hi, Eric. How are you? I am very well. Yeah, this is a cool thing you're doing. It's, uh, you, you are so civic-minded, it makes me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's also really fun. Um, I don't know if you, you know much about it, but the Schwagen Wagon is basically a, a project I put together with a couple of uh, friends of mine, and we go to conferences and collect unwanted sh- uh, swag to reuse and recycle. We donate it to charities. Uh, we are currently at the Web 2.0 Expo in San Francisco, and the charities we've selected for this time around are uh, Inner Kids, which is a kids' charity. We're going to be donating the toys, et cetera, and then one for the soldiers abroad. So uh, it's been really cool. The van is awesome. It's tricked out on the inside to reflect its name, Schwagen Wagon, faux fur, light show, and all. And we'll be also driving around from party to party, you know, taking people around, hopefully to prevent them from driving inebriated. So that's the goal, is really just to help people um, who are in need and um, get rid of some stuff that's weighing you down throughout the conference party crawl. So. What a great idea, because as we have learned uh, for, from ourselves, not the least of which, I'm still sitting on a, a pile of stuff we got at Blog World last year in Vegas. You know, all these shows, people typically make more than they need, more than they can hand out. So, you know, there's all kinds of goodies, and a lot of them are really, really interesting. Hey, we need to – I know you said the, the URL of the site's somewhat complicated. Let's let's say it over the air, but then we need to definitely get it written down um, okay. on on our site for the show. Uh, we can, and maybe if you could put it, write it down in the chat, that might be easiest of all. But absolutely. Uh, uh, but let's uh, let people know where they can uh, uh, find out about this and participate. Well, the Schwagen Wagon can be uh, viewed at www.schwaggin.com. That's S-C-H-W-A-G-G-I-N-Wagon.com. We're also on Twitter, and that's S-C-H-W-A-G-G-I-N, as well as Facebook. You can just sort of search for us. So we're all over the place. That is super, uh, <laughs> super cool. What, what's the wildest, strangest bit of swag you've picked up? Not really that wild yet. A cool pen, <laughs> some T-shirts. I'm waiting for it. I'm you mean not, you know, not like used underwear or anything? 
No. Oh. We just. I, wanna, I don't want to know what vendors giving away used underwear. No, no. Well, that's when you, know, you cross the line into, uh, you know, that other part of the internet. For sure, I've gotten new underwear, uh, you know, swag, which is fun. Well, heck yeah, everyone needs underwear. That's right. Underwear that's fun to wear. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's give a quick plug to your company as well. You, uh, we met you when you worked at Mevi, and you did a super job there. It's not your fault that they went down the toilet, and so uh, <laughs> you left before that happened. And uh, let, let's quickly tell people what you do. Well, I run a social media PR firm called Blogger Reps. We rep bloggers to companies looking to market their products through blogs. Uh, we started the company as bloggers because we were sort of fed up with the press releases and all the sort of irrelevant information that was bombarding our inboxes every day, and we thought, you know what, we can totally do this better. And since we know the bulk of the blogosphere, it seems, you know, we have an in, and a lot more so than, let's say, a traditional agency. So we put, we put on a show, and it's been doing really well, and we're about 10 months strong, and we've got this whole blog network, and people have signed up and agreed to, you know, for us to talk to them about products and really be on their radar, and it's got a collective reach of over 40 million unique visitors. So, like I wow. said, we got the in. <laughs> well, that's super. Well, thanks so much, Marjorie, and good luck with the Schwagen and, of course, with the business as well. And we like you, you and so you're much. super cool. And sorry we have to go so quickly here, but we, okay. we certainly wanted to get the word out about what you're doing. But, man, we got a whole we got a whole world, of, literally a world of people waiting to talk to us here, uh, the previously scheduled. So thanks so very much, oh. and have fun driving around. Yep, com. And, and, Dragonwagon.com. Uh, yep, I've dropped it into the chat room. I've added it to the show description. Hopefully uh, people can can check it out and have some fun with it. Excellent. Thanks, Marjorie. Well, yesterday was a U.S. primary election in Pennsylvania, and it might be expected that uh, political passions are running strong during a hotly contested election year. I, I think so far we, the co-hosts, managed to keep from talking about it too much. Uh, but our first guest tonight aimed to show us that all that passion doesn't have to come at the expense of common ground. Uh, RedBlueAmerica.com is the site, and Joel and Ben represent Blue and Red, respectively. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks guys. for having us. Our Ooh. pleasure. I don't know how we're going to compete with uh, used underwear, but we'll try. Or, or <laughs> swagging, for that matter. Exactly. Swagging in general. Hey, the site's really great. And when I was reading over the, the, the PR for it, I, I, I kept thinking, gosh, that's a lot like blog critics. Because, uh, you know, I mean, our, our politics section, that is absolutely uh, our, our approach. Our mantra is that we represent all sides. We were trying to present a, 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 a civil forum for people to come together. Now, you're doing it on a much larger scale because politics, of course, is just one section of our site uh, and uh, but uh, looks like you're you're doing a great job i think the the format's interesting the layout i was able to get through that front page really quickly and uh uh it's a it's a really interesting approach where did the idea come from and how long have you guys been doing it and and how are things going on the site want to take that well we've been, yeah i'll take that um we've been doing it uh we launched right at the beginning of the year just to get going with the uh the 2008 campaign season. Uh, idea came from actually uh, John Temple, who's the editor of the Rocky Mountain News. It was kind of his baby. He he, he just saw that uh, so much of uh, political conversation on on the internet is pretty much a, an echo chamber. If you're a liberal, you can find some really good liberal websites. If you're a conservative, you can find some really good conser conservative websites. But it's it's hard to find a place where people just talk to each other and aren't screaming at each other or aren't screaming about each other. And so. What we really wanted to do was bring people together to talk about politics and and agree, disagree vigorously. I mean, there are things that we just can't find common ground about. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we can't go out and get a get a beer at the end of the day. You know, like Tip O'Neill used to do with some of his Republican colleagues. Yeah, I, I think that's something that that has been lost for a while, and you've been hearing a lot about it. And 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 uh, as we have been discussing from time to time as politics come up. I think uh, I think all three of us uh, agree that this election does seem somewhat different, and it does seem, a, at least so far, a more civil atmosphere. And I think that's attributable to the personalities of of the remaining candidates. But I also think, uh, I mean, my opinion is is that the blogosphere has been really going full steam for around five years now, and I think people really are ready 
to uh, you know try to look at the other side a little better, or at least in a more civil manner. Because as you said, we've had this this echo chamber chamber going on, you know, really strongly for about five years now. What what have you found? What have you guys each respectively found where something where you were surprised where you were able to find commonality? Uh, and and then conversely, maybe what's an area that that you're just absolutely about as far apart as you can get, or or, are you, or you've even grown more far apart. Well, I, Joel and I, I think uh, just temperamentally as as human beings, I think we're we're similar, even if we don't share uh, too many opinions uh, politically. I mean, he's quite liberal, I'm quite conservative, uh, and that's okay. But what we figured out, what we figured out pretty quickly, actually, is that. Um, we can have a pretty spirited discussion on things like I mean we don't we don't agree at all on the war for example I mean we're complete we're polar opposites on the war but but we what we've been able to do uh, I think is uh, sort of stake out our positions uh, and attempt to you know sort of hash out our differences um, and uh, do it in a way that you know we're we're actually trying to make arguments you know and and I think we're trying to be persuasive. Uh, and uh, we're not interested in, in sort of flaming each other, you know, and, and um, so far I think that's gone pretty well. And, and the purpose of that really, I mean, what we're trying to do, I think, is set an example as moderators. What we're trying to do is show so the readers that come to the site, look, we can do this. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a great hunger, I think, for, for conversations of this sort, and um, and uh, you know, very early on, you know, I think people didn't really know what we were, we were trying to do. And and once they got into the site a little bit, um, they they saw what Joel and I were doing. And and I think a lot of folks have really kind of risen to the occasion. So that's that's a that's a real gratifying thing to see. I see readers can blog on the site as well. That's correct. And how does that work? What, do they have to sign up? What's that process? Uh, there's a real simple registration process. We tried to make it um, as accessible as possible. I think all we really need is a is an email address and a zip code, uh, and you can um, maybe you can give us more than that. I mean, there's a fairly extensive um, sort of op, but yet optional um, uh, sign up form where you can tell us as much about yourself. It's a little bit. It's got a little bit of a, a social networking element uh, on the site too, and and so. Uh, you can tell us as much or as little about yourself uh, as you like, um, and from there you're free to um, to blog away. Use our bandwidth. Okay. Well, let's let remind people what we're talking about here. Of course, the easiest way to to, to sort all this out for yourselves is to go to redblueamerica.com. But for those who don't have access to, to the computer or or some such thing, or they've never heard of such things, of course that, that would be impossible since we are on internet radio. But anyway, we'll, we'll they, they could be listening to the podcast and briefly away from their computer. Ah, theoretically true. Someone else could have downloaded it for them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but anyway, what? Could, please tell us. Uh, maybe just give a brief example. Maybe using uh, you know recent story. How do you guys uh, lay out? your topics that you're covering? How do, how do you address what's going on just for people who haven't seen the site? Well, uh, what we do is, uh, you know, we, we go through all the papers and, and all the websites that we can in the, during the course of the day and just see what people are, are talking about in the Internet generally. Uh, and then we know that, that uh, on a lot of things there's at least two sides. And so the, uh, the big spine of the site, and most of what you see down the left-hand side of the site, is a series of topics. What's the latest thing in the news? And rather than just giving our opinions, what we try to do is go out and collect the best opinions that are being expressed throughout the Internet and throughout the conversation all, all the way across the Internet so that uh, people don't, can just not hear that, hey, this is Joel's take or this is Ben's take, but here are the smartest opinions out there about it. And so we function kind of as an aggregator site in, in that part of things, but I think it helps people kind of get the lay of the land as far as what the issues are and how people are approaching it from either side. I love your, uh, your little meter there. Tell people how that works. It's, it's cool. You, it's interesting to see how far it veers to the left or right or, or the center, or hues to the center uh, on, on various topics. looks like there's quite a bit of variety. That, that's a really cool idea. How would you come up with that? Yeah, the idea, I mean, uh, this idea of, of red and blue and what's in between. And so uh, for every topic, uh, you can vote on, uh, on where, you, where you stand on it. Uh, 
and um, what you know, regardless of whatever the topic is, and 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 that I yeah I, you know that has been kind of interesting to see how that's played out because there's um, uh, there's a lot of purple on our on redblueamerica.com, and um, we we found I th- I think we found pretty early on that. Uh, uh, that the red-blue dichotomy um, isn't quite as hard and fast as maybe some uh, political scientists uh, like to think, and and so we've got a lot of we've got a lot of purples, we've got a lot of uh, a lot of grays, we've got uh, we've got blues and reds, but um, it's been a very interesting um, uh, experiment uh, in seeing just how uh, how people like to come down on some issues. Very surprising. What what single topic has received the most response, or or at least the strongest response? Well, we have a feature on the site called Truth or Not, and the the idea behind it is to take sort of uh, rumor or conventional wisdom or or something that's been in the news or it's in the news now uh, that that uh, is is controversial and and sort of either either proving it or debunk, debunking it and one of the uh, uh, one of the uh, earliest truth or nots we did was whether or not Barack Obama is a secret muslim and um that got uh, huge uh huge response i mean he's you know, not by the way he's, he's not. not he's not um <laughs> and there's there's ample evidence uh, uh that he's not uh but but there is a tremendous amount of passion about that i mean um, and there's a lot of people who even presented with a lot of evidence uh, aren't willing to believe it. But that that generated just a just a tremendous amount of of, uh, of comment and, and debate. And um, that, by far, I think so far has been has been the biggest. Boy, that really. You know, a- I, I actually I actually have one problem with with the idea of finding common ground. In fact, I, I used to write a column for uh, or co-write a column for for BC Magazine where. I think we called it in the middle, where where another partner and I would would approach each issue from right and left and try to find the common ground. So this is all very familiar, but I have to admit, none of our columns and and I think maybe most of yours don't quite generate amusing comments like the first thought I see under the "Is Barack Obama a secret Muslim?" column, in which uh, an anonymous commenter suggests that he's worse than a Muslim; he's a lawyer. <laughs> You, you can't be bad for entertainment. <laughs> well, you know, on that on that subject of of common ground, I mean, one of the things Joel mentioned it early on, and and I think uh, one of the sort of misconceptions about RedBlueAmerica.com is that we I mean, we really uh, I mean we're really quite clear about where we're coming from. I mean, I'm clearly coming from a conservative point of view. Joel is clearly coming from a liberal point of view. And we're not always going to agree, but the point is, uh, we just want to have we want to have a spirited discussion without tearing each other's throats out, which is a slightly novel thing in in uh, the era of uh, of blog politics. It seems to me, yeah, right? finding finding substance rather than slander. Correct. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't want people to get the idea that we're kind of you know there's a name for this kind of shallow centrism. That's called Broderism after David Broder, who's the Washington Post writer who never met a, a centrist position he didn't like. That's not what we're about at all. It, and it really is about – it's not about agreeing so much as it is just being civil. And you know, I think there's a lot of call for that right now. If you look at, uh, at the presidential candidates, at least two of the three candidates have made kind of their ability to reach across the aisle and at least not be a jerk to the other side – part of their core identity, uh, Barack Obama and, and John McCain. You know, he, John McCain, even today, uh, just told the uh, a state Republican Party affiliate, you know, don't run that uh, Jeremiah Wright, Wright ad about uh, Barack Obama because he wants to keep it at a certain tone. So I think, I think the candidates and even the politicians are recognizing that, you know, they're going to disagree with each other. I think you're going to see uh, whoever the Democrat is, and John McCain disagree considerably this time around, but there seems to be a growing commitment to try and at least not be jerks to each other. And I think this just kind of captures that zeitgeist a little bit. Super cool. I have one other interesting observation in terms of uh, you know kind of bucking trends. Um, Joel, you're in Kansas. <laughs> That's correct. You're 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 the the blue state liberal in Kansas, and, and then. You're, you're calling from California, the red That's state correct. conservative from California. 
Right. Well, I'm I'm in sort of the smoggy red part of of California. I, I live in the Inland Empire, which is one of the more Republican parts of the state. But yes, it is a, it is a, uh, a somewhat odd uh, odd dichotomy there. And I live you, in you Lawrence, Kansas, which is the one very very blue spot town. in the state. Yeah. Hey, we have uh, Aram Rostin coming on to talk about his uh, Chalabi biography. Uh, you mentioned, of course, your varying positions on the war. Why don't you real briefly give us your core positions on the war, and I think that will that'll set things up quite well. And actually, this is a time when, Philip, maybe it may, might make sense uh, to, to invite um, these guys to stick around. Maybe they'd be interested in, in speaking with Aram. Yeah, if you guys have time, you're welcome to stay on the line. Yeah, I'll stick around. Happy to. Oh, I'll go ahead first, if, if Ben doesn't mind. Um, okay. I, I'm obviously uh, uh, against the war. Uh, you know, I think if it was a matter of uh, weapons of mass destruction, which is kind of the necessary and sufficient reason we went in in the first place, uh, well, you know, we managed to keep the Soviet Union at bay for 50 years without ever invading the Soviet Union. Containment works. Uh, it's been bad strategically for us. It's created more terrorists than it's killed. Uh, and it's unsustainable financially and militarily. We, we're spending too much money, and our military is overburdened. It, it's it's been bad for America, and and it's I just don't see where we've gained much by it. My basic position is that Iraq is one front in a larger war on terrorism, and that the fact is, yeah, I mean, it's it, it has in 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 certain ways been uh, a, a bungle. Uh, but at the same time, it's incumbent upon the United States to fight it and win it. Uh, you know, and I, by the way, and I, 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 this is one area where we, where we sharply disagree, because it was never just about weapons of mass destruction. There was, there was a litany of reasons. And, and, and uh, Saddam Hussein was at war with the United States for years, and a, a, a terrorist state uh, who harbored and trained terrorists uh, who have gone out and waged war against the United States. And so if you remember what the basic Bush doctrine was about, it seemed to me that it was both prudential and, and um, entirely right uh, to, to take him out of the picture. That's my basic point. Well thank done. Thank and thank you, Joel. Uh, do please feel free to stick around on the line. Uh, the site is redblueamerica.com. Uh, ben and Joel, as you've heard, cover far more than just election results, so please do check it out. Our next guest is an Emmy Award-winning investigative producer at NBC News and, more recently, the author of The Man Who Pushed America to War, The Extraordinary Life, Adventures, and Obsessions of Ahmed Chalabi. Here tonight to talk with us about his book is Aram Rostin. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Mr. Rostin. Oh, thank you so much. Our pleasure. Really, really fascinating. As, as I always say at the, be at the beginning of these where books are involved, especially books I'm interested in, I typically haven't had a chance to, to really, you know, seriously read all the way through, but I do um, because, because they arrive, you know. Oh, of course. They arrive quickly. But, man, I, I was able to get through the, the beginning and the ending and, and, uh, and, and get some pretty good chunks in between. And it's a fascinating book. What a... What a strange and unusual man with almost like shamanistic powers. Yeah, that's what struck me about him. He's a fascinating individual. He's very contradictory, very compelling, and he attracted a lot of, of followers here in, in this country. Not so many overseas, but as you see, just a, a shamanistic is a really interesting word. I, I wish I'd thought of that while I was writing the book. Hey, you're he's, free to use it. He, he, thank you. Next time. He's... he's you know, he's led a very adventurous and interesting and strange life, aside from his tempting and pushing America into this conflict. Uh, for the benefit of of uh, of all, and I, I know a lot, it's probably it's recapitulation, of course, for you. But maybe if you could just give us, um, you know, the the real short bio version of who is this guy, and and how did you come uh, to choose to to uh, biograph him, and then uh, we can get into a lot more detail after that, but maybe if you could set it up for us a little bit. Okay, Ahmad Chalabi, of course, I, I called it, uh, we called it the, the man who pushed America to war because, of course, he had so much influence in the decision to go to war, and that's what I was trying to explore. He, he was an Iraqi exile from an incredibly wealthy family, the Chalabi family. He left during the, uh, the coup, or after the coup of 1958, which toppled the monarchy in Iraq, a very important period for that 
that country. Um, and he lived outside the country for a long time. He's famous for, well, he's a mathematician, a U.S. educated mathematician, um, but always a, 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 an Iraqi and Arab, a Shiite. Um, and he, after his education, he taught mathematics. He was brilliant at it, a brilliant mind. Then he turned his energy towards banking. His family was a banking family. He ran, there was a big network of banks that the family ran, and he ran the one in Jordan. Famously, it collapsed. The Jordanians took it over, and he was convicted in 1992 of, uh, of in fact, of, of embezzlement, uh, of crimes related to that bank's um, failure. He's always insisted that he was framed, but I, as I lay out in the book, there was a very compelling case, and uh, even though he was convicted in absentia, he, there was a, very, a, a lot of very compelling evidence um, that pointed towards him and his family and interconnected loans from him to his family. His next step, as a, as a, after being a banker, was to become an anti-Saddam activist, and he was a very, very, very effective one, and that's what we all know him as. <clears throat> he, he, he was recruited, really, by the CIA, the CIA, to a degree, invented him. American taxpayers began in the early 1990s funding Ahmad Chalabi's operations. And throughout the 90s, up into the early part of, of this decade, he, he received U.S. funding, massive amounts of U.S. funding, which is why I thought it was so important, because all of, most, almost all of his anti-Saddam operations, his push to get the U.S. to invade and topple Saddam, his push was funded by U.S. taxpayers through the CIA, through the State Department, the DIA, often unwillingly, often unknowingly, but that's what happened. And he had immense amounts of influence on a lot of journalists and a lot of intelligence people and famously on a lot of neoconservatives. I think that's the short version. Maybe it's too long, a short version. No, 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 that's, that's good. I mean, you, 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 of course, had to leave out so much. No, that's, that's yeah. great. That, 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 I think you covered it really quite well. Uh, and, and, and very concisely, this guy. The, the thing, I, one of the things I came away from your writing and, and just his story overall is is this guy has had more rises and falls than than you know the Clintons and, and Kennedys combined. Yeah, he's an incredible survivor, but because he's such an activist, I mean, I don't know what whether it's psychological or, or what it is, but he keeps on having these incredible efforts and then collapses. Everything falls apart around him. He's, he has to flee. He has to run. People come after him, whatever. It, and it happens repeatedly in his life. Maybe, you know, the first time was in that when he fled Iraq in 1958. But over and over again, you'd think his career is over. You want me to list some of the times? Sure, yeah. I think that's, it's amazing. You know, the guy, yeah. okay. got to give him credit for persistence. Yeah, yeah. Okay, in 1989, he flees from Jordan after his bank co is coll collapses and is taken over by the Jordanians. Costing uh, depositors hundreds of millions of dollars, which will eventually be a cost borne by the Jordanian government, which is understandably quite upset. Um, he flees Jordan. You'd think he could never remake himself, but he does as, a, as an anti Saddam activist, as I mentioned, as a real organizer. Then in 1996, the CIA had been funding him. They suddenly cut him off. They got sick of him. They said he was a phony and a liability, and they cut off all his funding. They had nothing to do with him. Basically, they, they, called it, they declared him a personal non grata for, for them. Um, they blackballed him, and he remade himself again. You would think, again, he would have been down and out, but you see in the book how, how he remakes himself. He, he latches on to this new, you could say, new vibrant movement of the intellectuals called neoconservatives, in this, you know, the hard right neoconservatives in this country, you know, and, and allies and realizes Washington's where he need, needs to really lobby. And he ties himself to some former security people, some intelligence people, some American retired generals who he likes and who like him. And so once again, he remakes himself. and He recovers from the ashes, so to speak. And it happens again later on in that time when finally the invasion happens. If you look at the invasion, he's not in power. Everybody thought he would just disappear after the after the invasion. They thought, well, his dream comes true, but... He had have no role in it. He he wrangled himself a role. He did it mainly by by by, by forming an alliance of Shiites, and we see now how important that was. The sort of the Shiite political parties. He managed to link them all together for a while. Everybody gives him credit. A lot of people give him credit or blame for, in fact, creating a lot of the sectarian loyalties that exist now in Iraq. But in nineteen in two in two thousand four, the Americans turned on him in a, to a certain degree. Some did. He moved. They. They raided his compound. It's quite famous in, in Mansoor, in Iraq, in this, this expensive part of Iraq. Security forces, Iraqis, in, uh, backed by Americans, actually raided his compound. It was a remarkable turn of events. 
Yet, once again, this time he remakes himself by going to Iran, by allying himself with, of all people, Muqtada al-Sadr, the anti-American Shiite cleric, who has, is so famous now. And then, uh, if I can mention one more period when he, he, he survives after what you'd think was a calamity, he runs for office. This is a man, Ahmad Chalabi is a man who, as I described, has convinced Americans he's going to rule Iraq, he's going to lead Iraq. He's their man. He's popular. They've convinced him. There's a popular vote in Iraq, and he gets nothing. He gets less than 1% of the vote. You'd think his political career is over. You'd think that, but it's not. Once again, he remakes himself. He's got a role in the modern Iraq. Anyway. It's amazing. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, what was it, October 07? He's, uh, could tell people, please, yeah. what his role is now. Well, once again, he's, he's, he's got several, but the most important one, he's coordinating services in Baghdad. Reconstruction um, and rebuilding of you know services like electricity, water, health, um, sanitation. But he's not you know whether he's he's clearly not been successful yet. But it, and it's unclear how much legal authority he has. But Nouri al Maliki, the prime minister, has appointed him to this role. This man who's uh, who's had so much of a strange strange past. He suddenly coordinates with the ministers of Iraq to try to get services for Baghdad. Now, obviously, some people have questioned this because he's, uh, he's dealing with Americans once again. He's dealing with State Department officials. Um, We've got an interesting question that's come up in the chat room related to that. Uh, how much power or influence would you expect Chalabi to, to wield in a potential McCain administration? Who can say? I don't think it'll depend. I, I mean, I think maybe in the past... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. In this McCain administration, I well, who knows? If McCain he, he, were to win the presidency and become president next year, what is true is that McCain has had a relationship with McCain, with Chalabi. McCain was supportive of Ahmed Chalabi. That is certainly the case. Whether he'll be supportive in the future, who can say? But he, there's no reason. You know, we know that he would necessarily distance himself. We don't know what he would do. And Chalabi may just. It's to a certain degree, whatever whoever the president is, he'll have to deal with whoever's in Iraq. Chalabi is one thing one must assume is going to keep on being a force in Iraq. But McCain certainly has had a relationship with a uh, for a long time. I, I describe in the book how McCain was an early um, signatory to one group that Chalabi set up after Chalabi had fled Jordan. When after he'd fled Jordan after his banking scandal, he was remaking himself in, in London and he and in Washington and he set up a something called the uh, I think it was called the International Committee for a Free Iraq. I have the paperwork from way back, all this, 18 years ago, and it, it says one of the signatories is, is, is the backers is, is John McCain. Interesting. Philip, I'm sure you have questions. Well, I mean, I, I guess I, I wonder, the, the title of your book, I, I, which unfortunately I've not had a chance to read, uh, is, is pretty specific. It's, it's the man who pushed America to war. And I, I do know that I had heard the name Ahmed Chalabi before, for the run-up to the war, and, and I guess I'm wondering how much of you say you had you know great em, or great influence on on the neocons specifically who backed the war from the beginning. How, how much of that do you think can actually be laid solely at his feet? I mean, with, without Chalabi, is there no invasion of, of Iraq? Some say that. I, you know, I can't make that judgment because we can't rewrite history and know and take him out of the equation. And who's to know, if he didn't exist, maybe somebody else would have filled this role of the charismatic Iraqi you know, figurehead. But what neoconservatives told me, and I quote them in the book, saying that he sparked this, uh, for a lot of them, sparked this incredible intrigue, uh, importance, uh, putting importance on Iraq on top of Saddam Hussein. That became the centerpiece of their foreign policy initiatives, we know. And publicly, I mean, they said that. And um, a couple of them pointed to him. One I quote uh, quite uh, openly, uh, Mae Wormser, who's uh, the wife of David Wormser, um, who's a very prominent one, who wrote a very prominent, important book in their movement called Tyranny's Ally. And, and she, you know, if you read the book, you'll see how she describes his role. She, I don't have the quote in my head, but it's in the book several times. She even says, Charlie came, and suddenly we had, we had an angel. And uh, now that's not to say they wouldn't have. They, they, a lot of them didn't know about Iraq and concern themselves about with Iraq beforehand. I, if I can, do you mind if I go on on that point for a second? Sure, no, go no, not at all. Another point I thought was interesting was that um, I, I, I think there was. I say there's three ways that he was very influential in America. Um, 
first of all, with the neoconservatives, and that not just neoconservatives, but even liberals. It seemed ideologically, things he just was very good with people. It superseded ideology. I've, I've met progressives who, who were pushing for after they met Chalabi. Um, and um, but that's well, the other way. That was, so that's I mean, you, could, you could say he had an ideological impression on America because he himself was not a neoconservative, of course. He also had a very important um, influence on journalists and on the intelligence community by propping, uh, we all know, feeding them this information after 9-11 that sort of pointed to Saddam Hussein as being tied to, um, you know, as, as being tied to WMD, being tied to al-Qaeda. If you all remember, the, the, a lot of these stories, the, famously people talk to about Judith Miller, but there's, there's other very important stories that point to similar things. Those came from Ahmad Chalabi. So you have this stream of propaganda coming forward. That propaganda, you'll see in the book. It, it, Sorry. It, is it your belief that he deliberately sowed misinformation, or was he himself convinced of what he was saying? I think it's both. He was certainly convinced. Uh, you know, he, his main mission was not to tell the truth. He never said it was. His main mission was to topple Saddam. And he's not an American. You know, he's, so he's, his people, though, if you read the book, he, I, I lay out how of the four main storylines that they pushed in the American, to the American public, um, two of his top aides told me they didn't, you know, they were very skeptical of the people they pushed. So they weren't, they didn't believe in themselves. Now, I don't know, you know, in his head, he's, he has claimed, he has said he was always, he never knowingly presented false information. But the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2006, the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, has said a majority of the members had a finding, which was that the Iraqi National Congress intentionally introduced false information into the intelligence stream to affect U.S. I'm sorry, they, they, that they introduced false information into the intelligence stream to affect U.S. foreign policy. They didn't rule whether it was intentional or not. And, uh, certainly some of his people have told me they knew about doubts and expressed them. And if I could go on with the, the third influence I thought he had, that I, I lay out in the book, um, it's political. Legislatively, in 1998, the U.S. Congress passed and the president signed the Iraqi Liberation Act, um, which was more influential than people give it credit for, perhaps. It, one could say, created the idea of regime change and made it U.S. law. It said, it shall be the law of the U.S. Uh, pol uh, regime change shall be the policy of the United States. In so that suddenly, Congress was dictating policy. What the drafter of that law told me is that the law was written in part for Ahmad Chalabi or his group, the Iraqi National Congress. I mean, you we almost the, couldn't make it up, you know, if you were a conspiracy no. theorist, that one guy could have all of those different kinds of influences. It's weird. I, I, I agree, but it's. I mean, this is. It's all on the record interviews and people who were there who did these things. What do you think is his his central skill? What what is the power that enables him to have this kind of influence over people? And and as you put it, and by the way, there's a really nice passage in there where you you describe his physical transformation as he. Um, discusses as he talks about his vision for for the Middle East and and it, with Iraq at its center. That's a really nice passage, by the way. Oh, thank you. Well, what I was referring to is I've talked to people who know people who look at him. Say, you look at a picture, or watch him walk. If you if you if you just see him in a press conference or or in a, an event, he sort of walks. One thinks maybe stiffly, perhaps, or he he has a sort of smirk. It looks like. But people who know him, who talk to him, they sit down with him. He has this compelling presence over when he dines with them, wit, a, a wit, a insight, a, a one man calls it bafflingly perceptive intelligence. And when he talks to people, very, he's a very nice person, very likable. He suddenly they begin to see him almost differently. They see his some of them see him not as clumsy at all, but as regal. And they see this very wise smile where they maybe before it seemed like a smirk, and, and, and that's what it may look like. Suddenly it's it's very regal and merry, and so and wise. And they'll describe him that way. Now, you did not speak with him for the book, right? No, I did not. He, he did not. You know, obviously, I tried like crazy. And of course. I really wanted to. How much did you rely on CIA sources for the book? I know you've mentioned him earlier when you were running through the, the three major influences he had. 
Um, to a degree, I run on anything to do with the CIA. A lot, of, and I had to rely on the CIA. I mean, on the former CIA officials. I mean, or obviously, where it's you know, where his engagement with the CIA was quite significant for a number of reasons. One is that they funded him. They gave him four million dollars a year. A lot of Iraqis and Americans believe that created him as an oppos- as a viable opposition figure because it gave him a funding stream and credibility with other Iraqis because he never admitted he was getting funding, but everybody knew it, if that makes sense. Everybody suspected it. So to get that, of course, I had to talk to a lot of ex-CIA people. The other really significant thing, though, which you may be touching on, is there's an animosity between him and the CIA that's very significant. He'll often right. build up an, a disagreement with an agency. Or, uh, the CIA is one. The State Department is another. The United Nations is another. But sort of institutionally somehow form a hostility toward a suspicion, it'll point to a conspiracy. Another one is the Jordanian government, or the Jordanian central bank, he believes, has a conspiracy against him. So uh, the CIA is like this. I mean, he's he's definitely pissed off some pretty big groups. Yeah, it's amazing he's still alive, quite frankly. (laughs) (laughs) He's a a survivor. And as much as damage as people think he's done, and as much as people dislike him, um, and I, I, you know, I don't think I portray a very favorable uh, picture of him. One thing that people do say is he's brave. He's, he's someone. Some most people say he's brave. Some say he's not. But you ultimately say you call this, you know, you call his story a tragedy. What, what, what is the, the you know, what, what causes that to be your final analysis? And is that your final analysis that that it, this ultimately his story is is one of tragedy? Is a tragic one? When he achieved what he wanted, what a what a what a kind of tragedy it was. It never, it, it's, he's portraying this incredible promise, and even if he doesn't know it, certainly, uh, you know, the devastation brought about by the invasion he pushed for, and the way it was done, is glaringly obvious. I think, even those who support the war effort agree that it was done badly. There may be different there may be different differing opinions there, but certainly no one no one says it's 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 not a, there aren't. Well, our red and blue guys said that. <laughs> they, What's that? Our red and blue guys said that. Uh, they are are uh, yeah. the people who were on before. Um, yeah. You know, supporting the war. I mean, I I, I in general, in the broadest sense, uh, well, I certainly did support the war. I, I rather quickly um, had had doubts after that and kind of wandered in the wilderness for a while. Uh, but you know, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there's a, too many people who who don't think that things were handled rather badly, and that in the classic phrase, mistakes were made. You know, do you, do you, yeah, where, well, where do you yeah, see yeah, things now? Do you think do you think the surge is a, an improvement? Is that going to last? What, what's your analysis of the current situation? I don't really know. I mean, the sources. Uh, you know, from from what I I haven't been there for a long time. I haven't been there since 2004. I still cover a lot of issues, especially financial corruption, et cetera, there. And I I think I'm pretty well aware of the Shiite infighting and who's who and who's who's not. But they who's not powerful. But I do think that certainly to the degree that fewer people dying, it's great. Clearly, um, to the degree that what's ha- whether why it's happening, it, it's it's clearly the surges have you know the clear the, clearly there has been less killing for a while although it seems to be on the upswing and uh, some Iraqis are quite skeptical some are hopeful do you um, hold out and, I'm, hmm? I'm sorry excuse me do you hold out hope that you know that his vision for a democratic uh, not only Iraq but but Middle East uh, spurred on by the example of Iraq I mean is is that uh, just pure fantasy or is that something that could come to pass at some point in time I don't know. I mean, who knows? I, you know, I, I really have no way of saying. I, it seems to me, it seems I can't see why it couldn't. But on the other hand, the way it was, the way people did run the occupation. His one critique, I mean, his his main critique is it was done badly. But everybody knows it was it was done fairly ineptly. I think even even the administra- administration officials uh, admit there were problems that there were. Well, they they blame it on on other reasons, but they you know that there were problems in the, in the way it was done. So who knows, uh, you know, whether democracy is possible. It, it seems strange to see uh, to say it couldn't be possible. Certainly, it doesn't look very likely right now, though. It, well, it, I, I think we could probably end up talking for hours about about this subject in this book. It's obviously a very important topic. Uh, you've done a lot of research on it. Uh, unfortunately, we are uh, out of time. 
So I will remind uh, listeners that the book is called The Man Who Pushed America to War, The Extraordinary Life, Adventures, and Obsessions of Ahmed Chalabi. And you'll find a link to it at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. And uh, you can also find out more there about our guest, Aram Rossman. Thank you very much for talking with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Fascinating. Really great stuff. Sorry we have to cut it off, but uh, that that's what happens when the... When the topic is great and the writer is interesting and the book is great, and, and and I do want to add, although I have not read cover to cover straight through, I've I've sampled it quite liberally now, and uh, it's an excellent, fascinating book. Thank you so much. Well, uh, the new album from Rosie is called Luckiest Girl, and here's a little bit of the title track. That was Luckiest Girl from the album of the same name. It was just released two weeks ago, I believe, and you can find out more details at rosymusic.com. That's Rosie with an E. We are delighted to welcome Rosie to the show. Welcome to BC Radio Live, Rosie. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Our pleasure, too. We were so <laughs> sad when we couldn't find you. I know. So we're so did, happy you're here. Did you hear what happened to me? You, you're, do you have a flat tire, some kind of car problem? Fate crashed, crashed into me. Oh, worse than that. Okay, I'm <laughs> sorry. Someone destroyed my old car, and then I had to go and get a new one. Right so, there and then. Yeah. And that was more important than calling us. <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I was strapped to a table, and they had to actually put extra tape down on me because they thought I was going to try to get away. To make the call. They didn't want me to move and make the call. <laughs> I... You know what? I, you are granted special dispensation. Oh, thank you so much. It was awful. But I'm fine. It's a slight whiplash and a brand new car. This is what happens, I well, guess. Well, the brand new car part's good. I'm sor- certainly sorry to hear about the whiplash. And that, that's, yes. Boy, that can really linger, you know. Yes, I know. I, I'm I'm being seen by a chiropractor who, who's one of the best, I hear. So I'm very excited about that. And, and in L.A., you know, you have to have a new car because pull up to a club and some old junker or else the paparazzi look at you like you're a crazy person or something. You won't be taken seriously. <laughs> at all. You're not holding up your part of the bargain. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I had one person, I remember, with a camera look at me, and they kind of looked at me, and they gave me this look like, she looks familiar, and then they looked at my car, and I, no, <laughs> no. way. <laughs> Maybe you subliminally, you know, the crash was on purpose. I don't know, maybe, but I'm just glad I'm okay, and, you know, I still have my hands, so I can play more guitar and write more songs. That's sort of the the main thing, you know, for me. Yeah, exactly. You are not just a, a, a singer. You are a songwriter. In fact, in some ways, you know, if you look at the kind of the arc of your career, uh, you know, you, you've had even more success, really, as a songwriter. Why, why don't you tell people a little bit about... Um, you know where, uh, some of the songs and where you've had them placed, and, and is this your second album? I know you had the the in the early OOS, you had more of a a uh, modern rock type feel, and this one's such a departure from that. It's it's uh, amazingly mature, kind of a whole panorama of jazz styles. It's it's really quite remarkable. I listened to it twice more today, and I thought I like it better each time. Oh, wonderful! Thank you so much. Well, it's interesting. Um, I think actually, yes, it was all of my work songwriting that actually pushed me in jazz direction because after my first record came out, which was sort of like 
they wanted me to, the label wanted me to be sort of like this hip-hop, soul, rock and roll girl, you know, so it's a mixture of all these sounds. Um, and uh, and then from there, I, I started writing a lot with a bunch of different artists and uh, got into writing a lot of R&B stuff. And that really, uh, I think, just took a toll on me psychically, musically, whatever, <laughs> because you find yourself just writing um, songs, uh, words, and melodies to these two chord progressions that, you know, after listening to them for hours and hours at a time, you get so bored, you know, and I just wanted to do something really different and really more complex and more more challenging, interesting. I mean, it's pretty challenging to write a, a good dynamic song to a two chord progression but um but I wanted to do something just really different and I wanted to do something that you couldn't really mess up you know in the studio where I had sort of been with so many different producers who um they just try so hard to make you into a pop star that um they kind of miss the idea of what the songs are and and they they sort of put their stamp on the production. Maybe it's not what you really want. So I taught myself how to play or how to um, sort of record myself um, using Pro Tools and basically just took my little Pro Tools rig around to all these different jazz musician tones and started recording hours and hours of piano and that sort of became the, the demos for the record. And by the time I finished writing the record, because uh, it took me probably about a year and a half, which I usually write a lot faster, but it was so hard snapping out of the, the pop thing which, um, and getting like more into a real classic kind of jazz style that um, it took a lot of research, a lot of real love and care to like make sure I didn't, you know, make a fool of myself trying to do that. <laughs> and so... Um, and so by the time I finished uh, writing the record, I felt I was ready to actually produce um, the record myself. And someone else believed it, too, and they, they helped me and gave me some money to do it. So it was a really special, very lucky experience for me all around. And so glad to have been able to do it and, and look forward to making many more jazz records in the future, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you really cover the spectrum. I love the kind of bossa nova bass, the the the, the Brazilian feel, but I like the horn up tempo kind of jump blue stuff too. Like the first track is is Bang. certainly yeah. That. The, but the blues I, is my favorite. I mean, if I could just make a lot of blues records, I would. But um, <laughs> and I actually am making a blues record now. But um, but I uh, yeah, I'm sort of painfully eclectic in a way where I. I'll try, like with jazz, I was trying to make a record that sort of had all the same kind of style on it, and I just, I failed miserably because all the songs are kind of different. <laughs> but that's okay because, uh, you know, I just, I wanted to be like a real sort of journey for the listener to be able to, uh, you know, feel all kinds of uh, musical well, I think you could succeed in, in really being a primer, you know, for people, for younger people, say in particular maybe, who who aren't familiar with those various styles, who who may have just never occurred to them that there may be anything in there for them. And by you covering the spectrum in such a way, and it's very appealing, it's very expressive, it's very tuneful, and uh, I, I think it's really a, a success, a total success. I mean, it's it's a like you say, it's really a daunting task to try to take on the history of <laughs> of, of vocal jazz music. Oh you my know. God, I know. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. That is so very kind of you to say. My my ego thinks here a million times. Um, I I definitely was really nervous about it. I mean, my favorite singers are just these legends. You know, Billy Holiday out of James, and I just thought, oh my God, how could I ever fill or even walk in their footsteps? You know, and so I just thought, whatever I do has to have its own kind of thing, you know. And so I, I guess what this is definitely my interpretation of of jazz, and um, and uh, I'll be, it'll be fun to sort of make it, watch it grow through the years because I'm sure I'll, I'll try to take it in many different 
directions even still. Well, and you, speaking you've of had which, a bit of well, you've had a bit of exposure too. The uh, your song "Love" was on a soundtrack, right? That's right. Um, actually, quite a few soundtracks. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> odd. But started off with Bridget Jones and has kind of moved around a bit. Right. I think. Um, let's see. It was in a movie called Something New and a movie called Monster in Law and uh, On Thin Ice. And yeah, it's that's been really great. I mean, that's definitely made it easier for me to do what I do full-time, you know. It's just like a, such a wonderful blessing to be involved in these soundtracks, you know. And you you redid Love for this new album, right? Yeah. We did it in more of what I originally kind of uh, wrote it as, which was sort of like a almost like an Eastern European kind of gypsy, klezmery style, you know, because uh, my people... Your peeps. My people came from over there. <laughs> Just shout out to my people. Happy Passover, you know. It's kind of funny. I'm actually sitting right next to the uh, Holocaust Museum in New York City, um, just looking out at the water. It's just such a beautiful night. I wish you were here. Well, I'm not super far away. I'm in Ohio, and boy, it's the weather, yeah. I mean, I think our weather's pretty similar right now. And Summer hit all of a sudden. It went from winter to summer without much in between. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm in, I'm from LA, so it's uh it's pretty warm all the time, and uh, so are you sort of bi-coastal? Is that your uh, modus operandi? I was for a long time, but it's too hard um, balancing two different homes, and you know, it's just too much. So I just come to New York now to work and to do shows. Um, I do also music for commercials, and um, I score films, too. A friend of mine and I, Mark Champs, were scoring a, a film for a, an Irish feature, which, um, which will be coming out sometime next year, so it's really exciting. Um, so, yeah, I just try to keep really busy so I can just keep making music all the time and never looking back, you know? Well, speaking of well, which, Philip, do we have another tune? We do. I was uh, about to suggest that we should probably uh, start to wrap things up here, and what we have is the new version of Love, about a, uh, about a minute of it anyway, uh, oh, from cool. the new album Luckiest Girl. So let's jump right to that. All right. That was Love from Rosie's new album, Luckiest Girl. Find out more details and where to buy it at rosiemusic.com. That's R-O-S-E-Y music.com. Thanks for spending time with us tonight, Rosie. Thank you so much for having me. And by the way, your uh, your Glamour Girl action photo there, that is one smoking hot pick. <laughs> action photo. Uh, so you... like, an, like an action hero diva? Heck yeah. Nice, perfect. <laughs> it is, it is smoking. My my wife came in earlier to the office, picked it up, and go, "Oh, you're talking to her, are you?" <laughs> Inspiring jealousy with a single photo, lovely. Well, you must send her my love because you know I always, I always like to, I I don't want to say I favor the women, but you know I like to keep them at my side because you know. Then no, no one's mad. I can be friends with everybody. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It was great talking to you, and and best of luck with all of your endeavors. And boy, I hope your whiplash feels better. I'm really sorry oh. to hear about that. 
Yes. Uh, you know, it'll be a, hopefully not too rocky of a road, but thank you so much. And uh, and uh, hopefully I'll see you in Ohio sometime. Soon. That would be super. Thanks awesome. a lot. Have a great evening. All right. Well, thank you again also to Aram Rothson and to Joel and Ben from RedBlueAmerica.com, as well as to my co-hosts, Eric Olson and Lisa McKay. I do want to put in a quick plug for tomorrow night's B-Sides concept album at 10 p.m. Eastern. Tune in to hear Dan Wilson. Uh, I, I want to say the legendary Dan Wilson, Grammy Award-winning uh, lead singer, songwriter for Semisonic. He's written some songs for Dixie Chicks. He's got some solo stuff. Just just simply great artist, and uh, Josh Hathaway will be inter- uh, interviewing him tomorrow night on the B-Sides Concept album. Again, that's 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can find out more about the B-Sides Concept album and all of the other shows on the Blog Critics Radio Network at blogcritics.org slash bcradio. I'm Philip Wynn, and this has been BC Radio Live. We do broadcast live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, so be sure to visit us live to participate in the chat room and watch the live video feed. If you miss the live broadcast, audio archives are available online, or you can subscribe to the podcast to have BC Radio Live delivered to you each week, suitable for listening at your leisure. Until next week, aloha!